Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, July 5th, 2021. On the show today, news, listener questions, and in our main segment, Jim gives us part four of the history of the Toy Story Mania attraction. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that in this sentence, love is a verb, love is a noun. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Well, as long as we're banding about love here, in tennis, love stands for zero, which is Kind of appropriate because in high school, when it came to love, I was definitely batting zero. So, <laughs> I think, uh, and that comes from uh, uh, the French word for egg, right, Louvre? I believe so. But again, it's like, who is bringing eggs into a tennis court? It's the strangest scoring system ever. It makes uh, Australian rules football and cricket look positively clear by comparison. Oh, absolutely. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers Luke Carroll, Moody Kim, Stephen JC, and Ellie over at Pacific Lutheran University, and longtime subscribers Gary and Michelle Cochiarella, HJC47, Steve Lutwin, and Ron V, who's goofy for Walt Disney World. Jim, these are the folks, and I've verified this, mm-hmm. who have recently been hired to guard the cucumbers over at Living with the Land. They say the pay is good, they get to sit in air conditioning all day, and there's always free snacks within arm's reach. I did enjoy watching this story blow up on oh, Twitter God. last week or right. thereabouts. You so know. For, our, for our listeners who haven't seen it, somebody was videotaped on social or was taped on social media jumping off of the boat on Living With The Land to grab a cucumber on the ride and then trying and failing to jump back in the boat. And so I went on Living With The Land yesterday, Jim. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And honest to God, mm-hmm. the number of times they tell you, please stay in the boat. Mm-hmm. I think it's literally half the dialogue. It's amazing. Aren't there these things called intrusion mats on the attractions where, you know, if someone were to step off kind of an omnimover or a boat, there are these pressure sensitive things that indicate, okay, someone has left the boat and normally that causes an e-stop or that sort of thing. So, so what happened here? It was just, I mean, I get it was a horticultural area and you need the space to actually grow things, but no intrusion mats? You know, there's this famous saying in engineering, and it's, mm. you can make it foolproof, mm. but you can't make it damn foolproof. <laughs> <laughs> like, there's always, there's always going to be someone, Jim. There's always going to be someone. When you're winning the, the rat race, they come, here comes faster rats, so it's like... <laughs> We were all set for idiots. We just weren't expecting that big an idiot. Damn it. <laughs> yeah. I was, uh, so when I was at Epcot yesterday, I was mm. watching the, um, this, there's this mini show called uh, Science from Scientists. It's an outdoor show, sort of like live theater, but they, uh, it's a, do you remember the old Idea Lab or a Spectro Lab thing there at we Epcot? Go. Mm-hmm. Where, yeah. where they had scientists talk about sciencey things. They had two of them talking about photosynthesis. And unironically, uh, we were seated in the sun as we were talking about photosynthesis, which was, I think, appropriate if I was a plant. Anyway, they, uh, the number of please don't steal the cucumber jokes they made in one 10-minute segment, I think, was like eight. It was great. Yeah. Also, I was uh, staying at uh, Saratoga Springs, and I went out for a uh, run this morning. And let me ask you this question, Jim. Mm-hmm. Who decided to measure the distance around Saratoga Springs in furloughs? <laughs> Like the jogging trail, the jogging trail, you're at furlough number eight. I'm like, and you know, I'm looking, it's like, it's 630 in the morning. I'm trying to figure out like how many furloughs do I need to run to do like three miles in 30 minutes? And, 
and I ended up with a 750 on my SAT for that morning, Jim. I think I feel pretty good about it. Yeah. What is the name of that famous play? They shoot horses, don't they? I mean, it's just the notion of you're if you're running furloughs and it's like you you trip and break your leg, Len. You know, this story doesn't end happily. <laughs> Holy cow, furloughs. Oof. It um, was uh, it was a little bit of math for, at 6:30 in the morning. It was great. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well. All right, Jim, let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. Jim, some news coming out of Walt Disney World in the last couple of days. Early theme park entry begins October 1st. I think we kind of suspected that. Mm-hmm. The bigger news, evening extra magic hours, and that might not be the official name of it, mm-hmm. uh, returning sometime uh, as well but for deluxe and DVC guests only. So before, evening extra magic hours were for all mm-hmm. Disney resort guests. Now it's just for deluxe and DVC. What are your thoughts on this? There's a thing that the Disney fan community does. They like to turn the head of the company or the head of a particular division into a villain. They're deliberately doing this to upset the fans and you know, disregarding the spirit of the company. And we saw mm-hmm. a little bit of that with Bob Iger. There were folks who would go out of their way to be dismissive of him and call him the weatherman. And and I honestly get what Bob Chapek is dealing with. You know, the parks have been closed around the globe for months at a time, and mm-hmm. the company's still trying to get back on a financial footing. But it, it seems lately the company is leaning into this have and have not narrative, and, and I think it it may be by accident. This sort of thing does feed into that. There's a famous story about Walt, how he talks about it takes so little to lose a customer, and then you have to spend so much money to get them back. Yeah. And something like this, where it's just sort of like, oh, you know, the, the extra magic hours. Well, you're not saying at a deluxe resort. You're not one of our DVC members. You can't do that. That's a story you take home and share with friends and family. And I don't know how you undo that that perception you know on the one hand we know that universal Mm. does express pass Mm -hmm. which is front of the line access for its deluxe resort guests Mm -hmm. right and disney can't do something like that because too many too many resort guests right and too many it'd be too many for the line uh passes and so i i get that so you know if if you were to say that evening extra magic hours for disney deluxe and dvc guests is roughly the equivalent of Universal's Express Pass thing, right? You know, Universal's doing this. I can sort of squint my eyes and, and rationalize this. But my larger question was uh, then would be, since when did Disney start taking cues from Universal? <laughs> yeah. Right? If that's the thing, right? Mm-hmm. If Disney is no longer going to say, well, look, we're going to be in a leadership position mm-hmm. on these particular things, absolutely fine with it, right? If that's what we're saying. Yeah, well, then, you know, to, to be honest, that, that if we're, we're doing that, I can date when this started. That was 2010 with the opening of the Wizarding World and when people could queue up for butterbeer. That was the moment that Disney began looking over their shoulder. And th- there's nothing, I'm not, I'm not trying to disparage Universal because I love what Universal is doing. I, I think Velocicoaster is fantastic. I've said mm-hmm. so, you know, on, in the media. But when you look at some of the moves that Disney's been making lately, it's hard not to think that some of them are literally direct responses to what Universal is doing in Orlando. And I, I'm talking about things like the redesign of the rooms at Pop Century and the Value Resorts, where 
let's be honest, a direct response to what Universal was doing at Cabana Bay because Cabana Bay is fabulous, right? If you look, mm -hmm. at, if you look at the redesigns of Pop Century, look at the redesigns of All-Star movies and eventually the rest of the All-Stars, mm -hmm. Disney would not have done that level of redesign without Universal coming out with Cabana Bay, right? Mm -hmm. And similarly, if you look at what Disney's done with the contemporary room design, we saw the previews for those last week, mm -hmm. right? That again is let's bring mid-century modern design to the one resort that is actually mid-century modern, right? Mm -hmm. Or modern design in the, in the mid-century. I will say that I, <laughs> I, the contemporary rooms to me look not great. Mm -hmm. have, you, have you seen them? I have. I have. And even as an Edna Mode fan, I, I don't know as I want to sleep with my face on her face. Yeah. You remember the days when the Magic Kingdom resorts just had to be the Magic Kingdom Resort. So, you know, I mean, they had, they were, they had personality. They had yeah. their own distinct theme. Yeah. Just this week, we've had the announcement about the new Mary Poppins Return themed restaurant. Don't get me started. That's coming later, Jim. <laughs> okay. we'll, All right. We'll talk about that in due time. But it's just that the contemporary is within walking distance of the Magic Kingdom. Shouldn't that sell itself? Why do you need a character overlay? Well, number one, I think that's what Disney's saying. Disney's mm -hmm. saying, like, Look, we can do any sort of generic theme we want here, and you're going to accept it mm -hmm. because of its, its walking distance mm -hmm. to the Magic Kingdom. And my response to that is, well, if that's the case, mm -hmm. why not just put motels up around Bay Lake mm -hmm. and say, you know what? You're not paying for theming. You're paying for the proximity to the park. Take it or leave it, mm -hmm. right? But these, these designs, which are becoming increasingly generic in the hotels, right? The contemporary you can't tell me that, that, that you couldn't take that contemporary design and put it in Grand Destino Tower or half a dozen other Disney resorts mm. and get pretty much the exact same effect. In fact, like I mentioned, I'm staying at Saratoga Springs. I was in the Saratoga Springs bathroom yesterday, and there's literally nothing in there that distinguishes that bathroom from any other bathroom in Walt Disney World. Similarly, the bedroom. You know, I was in the bedroom. There is no decor in that bedroom that separates that from any other room in Walt Disney World. It's all generic. And it doesn't have to be that way, especially for the contemporary. Did you see the, uh, somebody on Twitter pointed out that the contemporary design looks almost exactly like the Motel 6 Anaheim oh. in terms of its interior? Oh. <laughs> and, and I don't see that in a bad way. I like Motel 6, right? Yes, what yes. Motel 6 is, mm -hmm. Motel 6 does some ambitious stuff, right? Mm -hmm. for, the, for the price point that they're at, Mm -hmm. Motel 6 tries some incredibly innovative designs. It's mm -hmm. not a knock on Motel 6. Mm -hmm. I like their stuff. But when someone can pull up in 15 seconds mm -hmm. an image that went side by side, looks identical to your $800 a night hotel, mm. it might be problematic. Now, for me, the thing that Disney should have done, mm -hmm. right? Because if we're going to do criticism, it should be constructive, right? I would have taken cues from the TWA Hotel at JFK in New York. Oh. which is a uh, mid-century modern masterpiece. Mm -hmm. In the rooms, you guys should go look this up, uh, twahotel.com. Look, what, what, look at what they're doing in terms of mid-century design, in terms of the space of the rooms, in terms of decor, in terms of the views, for a third of the price of what Disney's charging mm -hmm. for the contemporary. Disney literally could have done that and thrown up some you know, mid-century inspired Incredibles coasters, mm -hmm. posters, and called it a day. And they didn't do that. And again, I, I haven't seen the room. We haven't mm -hmm. seen it. It could be better in person. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying this, this whole thing of 
we're gonna we're gonna do white sheets, mm-hmm. some uh, light colors. You know, you guys all know what I'm talking about. You can pick and choose any number of fixtures from any room, any any rooms in Walt Disney World, and and move them around to different resorts, and you'd get exactly the same effect. Rule number one: If you're gonna theme your hotel around The Incredibles, maybe watch the movies first. Just a suggestion. And it kind of, I mean, Incredibles two, it kind of made sense, but they didn't theme it enough, mm. right? It's this again. It's this thing where it's like. We're gonna go with with white sheets, and we're gonna go with neutral colors everywhere. And there's just nothing distinctive about it. Mm. And again, for eight hundred dollars a night, I don't see it. No. Anyway, other news: Disney confirmed dining plans will be coming back at some later date. That's news because we hadn't heard any sort of commitment around them officially coming back. That's good. But this is largely dependent on what's going on in the UK with the Delta variant. There's yeah. the market that's so hugely into the dining plan. That until that demographic or that market comes back, it's nice that they're talking about it's coming back. But again, we won't see that until the you know folks in the UK can start coming over to the resort. Yeah, and there's um, we'll talk about this. A few more Disney restaurants have opened up, but at this point, Jim, it's just restaurant capacity, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And for a while, that's going to be still compromised. I'm, I'm thinking by the end of the year, maybe. I mean, some of it is staffing, some of it is supply chains, and you still get Disney a little nervous about coming back. Are they, they going to consistently come back? There's definitely a learning curve this time around. The other thing that, uh, that Disney mentioned is that run Disney races are coming back. And I, we talked about this on the show about a month ago. I didn't think they were coming back. And I had heard mm-hmm. that the odds were against it coming back. So they must have pulled something off like in the last month. But uh, they're doing a wine and dine November yeah. 4th through the 7th, 2021, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. I'm a little concerned that that one goes through Epcot, right? It ends at Epcot. Okay. So the theme is wickedly delicious. Mm-hmm. So I think it's uh, so five t- five t- 5K, 10K, mm-hmm. half marathon. And then there's a two-course challenge, which is the 10K and the half marathon. Post-race party at Epcot. That's probably going to be in World Showcase. Okay. Yeah. Because... The center of that park is still a coronary bypass at this point. Yeah, the front of the park is still... Oof. Yeah, yeah. So, glad to see these events coming back. I know people really enjoy them, but it's just sort of like, really? There? Start there with the Journey of Water Moana thing? That's, that's supposed to open until next year sometime, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, they'll, it, they could do what they've done in the past, bring you in sort of around the Millennium Celebration area. Mm-hmm between the UK and France mm-hmm. and have you, you know, run around the opposite side. Oh, okay. So, all right. Yeah. All right. That works. So the Walt Disney World Marathon happens January 5th to the 9th, 2022. Mm-hmm. The Princess Half Marathon, February 24th to the 27th. Then there's a new event. It is the Run Disney Springtime Surprise Weekend. That's March 31st to April 3rd. And the interesting thing about that is that the theme uh, and the distances will change from year to year. But it will also always be the, uh, the fourth weekend of March. That's interesting. We have basically eight weeks from the November and January event, and then it looks like the first three are just six weeks apart each, aren't they? Yep. It's also good. I mean, it's good weather to run, too. March, March into April starts to get a little warm. January is always dicey. We've talked about this on the show before. Yep. You know, it could be cold. could be warm. You don't know. February, I think you have a chance of better weather. March, definitely better weather. Yeah. Okay. I might sign up for the half. We'll see what happens. Okay. All right. Also, Jim, we mentioned restaurant reopenings. So Casey's Corner in the Magic Kingdom has reopened. Our long national nightmare is over. Plaza. And they have a new vegan uh, hot dog, which I'm going to try in a few hours here. 
I'm getting ready to head out for the first happily ever after. The Plaza Ice Cream Shop opens July 7th, and Trails End reopens July 17th. The big controversy there is no fried chicken. Do you think this will mutate into another Ohana noodle situation? You know, I part of me thought, are they just doing this for the social media discussion, mm. right? You know, on the one hand, it's probably cheaper to do rotisserie chicken than it is fried chicken. Mm. But you got to wonder whether it's like, can we just get people in an uproar and, and get some, generate some buzz on social media about it? I'm not sure. Okay. I, I don't see Trails End without the fried chicken, though. Yeah, yeah. Now, have we confirmed this is family dining versus buffet? I believe it's family style dining, but I'm not okay. sure. I have to go back and check that one. I didn't get past the fried chicken thing. Okay. And I was actually running around uh, Disney Springs yesterday when the announcement came out. So I'll go back and check. This gives you yet another reason to go back to the Grand Flop. You don't have the chicken? Fine. I'll be at the Grand Flop. <laughs> exactly. And then you mentioned this before, but Citrico's is reopening at the Grand Flaherty in July 15th with a Mary Poppins Returns overlay. So let me see if I understand the theming as it sits now for the Grand Floridian gym. Mm. It is a 20th century, early 20th century Florida resort in the style of West Palm Beach and the sort of the Flagler sort of style. Okay. That's where we start. Yep. Right. (laughs) With a French uh, bar celebrating Beauty and the Beast and an English-themed citrus-based, Florida citrus-based restaurant with a Mary Poppins Returns overlay. Did I capture all of that correctly? Park Fair? Is that the name of the giant? uh, 1900 Park Fair, yeah. 1900 Park Fair. Okay, and they've had character dining in there forever. They've had, you know, Alice-themed dining. They surprisingly lean into the UK stuff. You know, this is where you could visit Mary Poppins and Bert, you know, dressed for Jolly Holiday and you know, that's gingerbread. What, yeah, it must be Victorian. Yeah. I remember talking with the folks who were in charge of that, and they just didn't want to talk about the dry cleaning bill because here comes Mary Poppins in her hugely expensive Jolly Holiday outfit being greeted by dozens upon dozen children who are sticky with maple syrup. You know, Mary, wave from a distance. <laughs> Stay away from the kids. <laughs> can, we, can we just put her in saran wrap? Saran wrap is Victorian. I get it. I mean, so for me, you know, character dinings, especially at the uh, at, at the Grand Floridian, have always been sort of the exception to the themed rule, and they've mm-hmm. they fit in. And I get that, you know, they're yeah. they're trying to blend in the Victorian England theme with the Victorian American theme. It's the French restaurant that I don't understand on the second floor. But remember, we also have the water play area that's Alice in Wonderland theme just outside of the, off the lobby. So it's kind of a catch-all. It'll be kind of a stretch if they, they go for the Moana thing, but, you know. We'll <laughs> It'll be over at the poly. Okay. Yeah. All right, Jim, let's do some listener questions here real quick. Mm-hmm. So a quick update. La- last week, we had a question from Dan, mm-hmm. who said that he's going to be chaperoning a high school band trip to Disney World with 40 kids and wanted to know how he was going to be able to do a boarding group for Rise of the Resistance for 40 kids. So it turns out, Jim, that a recent update to My Disney Experience will automatically select everyone in your friends and family list who have park reservations for the studio that day, so it's possible to do a group of 40. And honest to God, I got a call from Disney about this. <laughs> really? Okay. Yes. Like, okay. hey, this thing we just did. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it worked out well. All right, so Dan, you should be able to see if everyone in your group is in your friends and family group, you should be able to see it all in Rise of the Resistance. Also, last week, we read a letter from John who asked about the status of Mickey Mouse when he enters the public domain 
on January 1st, 2024. I think our consensus was there's no way that uh, Disney's lawyers are going to let that happen. We just don't know how. Mm-hmm. And we got a nice email from a, a lawyer who will remain anonymous, mm-hmm. who said our discussion was, and he put it politely, flawed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, <laughs> said you're correct that the Sonny Bono Copyright Extension Act, sometimes referred as, to as the Mickey Mouse Protection Act, mm-hmm. means that some copyrights can expire in a few years unless their U.S. copyright term is extended. He said there's way more to it than that because Disney's videos invoke many intellectual property laws. So, for example, the eight minutes of video that comprise Steamboat Willie includes both a copyright on the song Steamboat Bill, which expired a long time ago, but also Disney's copyright on the arrangement used in Steamboat Willie and the individual drawings and the visual animations that result from combining them are also covered as well. So the, uh, the gist of it is that unless Disney somehow forgets to renew a trademark mm-hmm. on Mickey Mouse, which is unlikely, the trademarks on those things uh, like Mickey Mouse won't expire and that Disney can and will aggressively enforce those. So the uh, thing that he points out is that there's been voluminous case law regarding the trademarking of, for example, the expired Peter Rabbit copyright mm-hmm. and other cases that have lit- been litigated since then teach us that Disney will probably have the exclusive rights to profit from Mickey Mouse in the United States until either Disney or the United States ceases to exist, <laughs> which I think is kind of great. So, all right. So I, I, we, I think we all knew that there was no way that Disney was going to lose control of Mickey Mouse. What our anonymous lawyer friend here is telling us is that uh, that's definitely certain. So okay. fair enough. No, no, no. I appreciate that. And a friend of the show reached out about, and wanted to point out the Mickey and the Air Pirates thing from the 1970s, where I, I think it made it as far as the Supreme Court. And the question was, well, we're, we're using Mickey, but in the case of parody? And that got really sticky as well. So, I mean, there's, there's lots and lots and lots of case law out there. All right, Jim, let's move on to the next question then. This one's from Stacy, who has a few mm-hmm. questions. One, why do you think they haven't brought back more options for food at the food courts? The values have the same menus right now for the most part, and do not have a wide variety. As far as I know, we're not worried about food shortages anymore. So what's going on? My guess is labor. We're not dealing with the same supply issue that you know we had two and three months ago, but you know the combination of you're having trouble staffing kitchen spaces. In fact, a couple of shows back, we were talking about you know the, the bonuses they were offering for people to, to come on. $1,000, you know, yeah. 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 Do you know what a spatula looks like? Close enough. Come on back. <laughs> Avoid the <laughs> grease trap. Let's go. So that's got to be a factor between the supply chains and staffing. Also, we are, in fact, talking about the moderates here. You know, a food court is a food court is a food court, right? Yeah, the values too, especially. But like at Pop Century um, mm-hmm. and then at Art of Animation, they're essentially identical menus. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would expect that all of the food courts would have super similar menus as well. No. Uh, when do you think resorts like Port Orleans are going to open again? So my guess is that French Quarter will open before Riverside because it's smaller. What do you think? Yeah. That's definitely what I'm hearing. The problem with the Portal Lane complex is it's huge, particularly when we get into, you know, the former Dixie Landing side. Just the amount of turf staff has to cover to turn the rooms and that sort of thing. I mean, it, it's much more involved. So, yeah, definitely French Quarter first. Uh, next question. Do you feel like the resorts that are open are at full capacity, such as the values? I, I mean, we know that the values aren't because there are two all-star resorts that aren't open. So... Uh, I guess the question is, the, for the resorts that are open, is every room available? My sense on that is no, that they're not. One of the things, though, that I've heard, and I've actually seen this happen, is that certain classes of rooms 
at the resorts are busier than others. So at Art of Animation, for example, mm. the Little Mermaid rooms, which are the less expensive sort of standard hotel rooms, there are instances where those are more than 100% booked mm. at any given time. And what they're doing is if, if there is availability at the suites, they're walking some guests from the Little Mermaid rooms over to suites. And I've actually had that happen to a couple of people who listened to the show over the last couple of weeks. So I, I know that it's happening. And that's what I think is, is happening too. Disney's taking guests at some of the value resorts moving them to, for example, moderates so they can sell more value hotel rooms. The COVID restrictions have been lifted and people are desperate to get back to Disney and it's just sort of like that price point. I want that price point. And, you know, whatever gets me there the quickest, you know, and, and gets me a property. And, and so this is that sort of emergency release valve is that, yes, I know you, you book mermaid, but hey, come on over to Lion King. Lovely, sweet, you know, and just, you know, and we, then we can continue to use that to get people to book trips down here. And that's what they're uh, that's what they're doing. It allows them to oversell some of the uh, less expensive rooms um, while still housing everyone. Yeah, there you go. As far as wait times go, Stacy asks, do you think they ever adjusted them for social distancing and lack of uh, available shows? Yeah. So, um, so if you look at wait times, it's sort of interesting right now. There's some attractions where the posted wait time is really really close to what you're going to wait. So, Millennium Falcon. At Galaxy's Edge and Disney Studios, if the wait time says ninety, you're pretty much going to wait ninety minutes. The Millennium Falcon is one of the most accurate posted wait times that that I've seen in a while. And there are other attractions. And the, the canonical example that we gave during the pandemic was Big Thunder Mountain, where Disney mm -hmm. just didn't have the line capacity to hold like a sixty minute line. So what they would do is artificially boost. The, the posted wait time. So where the actual wait time might have been 15 minutes, you know, they would tell you it was 60 just to keep people from getting in a line and mm -hmm. Disney having to figure out where to put all those people. So there are a few attractions where still the posted wait time is just complete fiction when it comes to how long you're actually going to wait. And I think Big Thunder is one of them. I think Haunted Mansion is another. I think there's a couple over at Animal Kingdom as well. But yeah, so there are some attractions where the, the posted wait time is super, super accurate. And then there are others where it's, you know, you got to take it with a grain of salt. I agree. Uh, next question from Stacy: Why do you think they can't get the bus system together? As long as it's been going, it's so consistently inconsistent. Why can't they come at scheduled interviews? Why can't a bus that has no one to pick up at the resort change it to pick up the million people who are waiting at Pop Century? <laughs> yeah, this is the eternal question. I've actually talked to people in transportation, and it, apparently it's a, it's a bigger problem than we all think it is because they've, Jim, I, I can't count. I can't even remember how many different, you know, we're going to fix the bus system this time oh, for God. sure yeah. initiatives mm -hmm. Disney's done over the last 20 years. Mm. I mean, it's got to be three or four, right? Prior to the pandemic, we had the last iteration and they were very proud of themselves that they had crunched down the wait time by like five minutes or thereabouts that, you know, they yeah. were responding that much quicker. And then, you know, here comes the pandemic and suddenly no one needs buses and people leave the job field. And now they're just scrambling to just adequately staff, let alone be able to address situations like this. There's a million people waiting at Pop Century. Let's send the buses yep. over there. It's like, I would if I had them or if I had the staff to drive them. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it's staffing. I, I'd love to know, and I haven't talked to anybody at Disney Transportation about this, but mm -hmm. I'd love to know how predictable the crowds are 
at different times of the day. Like, for example, can we always guarantee that an hour before opening Mm -hmm. of the Magic Kingdom, there are people who are lining up at Pop Century for a bus? And if so, how many of them? And, and how much does that vary from day to day or season to season? By the way, I was out for my 20 furlough run today at, uh, at Saratoga Springs, and I did notice the first bus for Animal Kingdom was mm-hmm. at 6.45 a.m. Park opens at 8. So that's, yeah. that's pretty early. Fairly consistent to there. All right. Here's a question from George. It says, uh, I was just wondering if you could shed any light on the current situation surrounding Typhoon Lagoon. With Blizzard Beach having been open a few months now, the hottest months of the year upon us, and Disney steadily progressing back towards full operations. I'm surprised we haven't heard anything yet about the reopening of the other water park. So, Jim, uh, I know our friend BioReconstruct has had some excellent photos of Typhoon Lagoon uh, in the last couple of weeks. By the way, there's a helicopter flying around uh, Epcot yesterday when I was running around it, and I, he's got to know that every time that I see a helicopter, I look up and go BioReconstruct and wave. There you go. Anyway, uh, but one of the things that Bio's um, photo showed on Twitter was a ton of scaffolding around the main wave pool of Typhoon Lagoon. You think this thing is closed not for demand, but for maintenance? We've had this historic pattern of the one-way park will go down for three or four months with the maintenance, then the other park will go down, and then, you know, they're both open for summer. Typhoon Lagoon opened in 1989, so we are now 32 years into the life of this thing. Yep. And the giant water drop devices back there that, that create that wonderful six foot tall surf and thereabouts, if they have an opportunity now to finally do some really for real maintenance in there, get there in, in there and yeah. fix them. And, and, and let's also be honest here. We were just talking about the staffing issue. If you're struggling to staff just one water park, it's like, it, it's kind of, uh, okay, this is a twofer. We'll, we'll keep that park open. We'll finally do the hard work on Typhoon Lagoon, get this done. Just be aware that it's quite likely that once Typhoon Lagoon comes back online, we may see it as lengthy repair work being done on Blizzard Beach, you know, just because we're still dealing with a resort that's still ramping up, that, that isn't back to full capacity. And so it's like, just take advantage of that opportunity. But it's been months at this point, right? Right. Well, I don't think they did the normal maintenance over the winter that they did because they didn't know when it was going to reopen. So this could be their normal maintenance just shifted to later in the year. What's great about our buddy BioReconstruct is he's been doing this for a while. And the fact that, you know, he's got these pictures of the scaffolding around the actual wave drop complex, that's kind of significant. You know, the fact that you drain the pool and you get the scaffolding in there to work mm-hmm. on these things, you know, that's... Right. That's not, oh, we're going to do that Tuesday afternoon. I mean, that's a commitment <laughs> to a fairly sizable project. Yeah, that's, that's a weeks or months long project there. There yeah. you go. I mean, hopefully it'll come back. It'll be good as new. Here's open. Here's a two, we got two VIP tour questions this week. I don't, I don't know what kind of budget our listeners think we have, but, <laughs> but it's, it's admirable mm-hmm. that they think we know about VIP tours. Here we go. Mm-hmm. All right. So, uh, so one's from Aaron and one's from Jason. Aaron writes in and says, we'll be booking a VIP tour for the first time and we're looking for tips to make the most of this experience. And then Jason writes in and says, we're thinking of doing a VIP tour in the hopes that it'll secure us a reserve spot for fireworks and any presentations. Do you have any insider knowledge about anything else that's going on special on the day of the 50th? And then Jason says, the posted prices for VIP tours range from $425 to $750 per hour. And we're assuming for $750 for October 1, mm-hmm. for the minimum seven hours, it works out to $525 per person. 
Alternatively, if Disney were to offer a dessert party, I can't imagine they'd go for less than $250 per person. And all, all, all we'd get is some dessert. So the, he said the cast member I spoke to at VIP Tours uh, was unable to provide any concrete details regarding fireworks access or pricing and suggested I try back closer at the 60-day booking window. So here are the questions. Um, number one, will Disney keep the pricing at $750 an hour? Two, will there be fireworks access? Three, are there any potential flaws in my plan? And then four, do I have, <laughs> do I have a shot in hell of securing a tour? <laughs> All right, Jason. So let's, uh, let's start with, uh, with these. Will Disney keep the pricing at $750 an hour? My sense is there will be considerable demand for VIP tours on October 1, mm-hmm. and your price will be towards the higher end of the $750 an hour range. Back in, 20, back in 2019, mm-hmm. in May, during sort of a, not a busy season, but not a slow season, I was quoted $625 an hour for a tour that I was going to uh, do for my mom. So I would be surprised if October 1 is less than that. As it turns out, I'm actually doing a VIP tour tomorrow. I don't know why I'm joking about that. I'm actually doing a VIP tour tomorrow for Hannah's birthday. Um, I'll ask about the fireworks access and mm-hmm. see what happens. Uh, then I'll get back to the next one. My, I don't know, Jim, that VIP tours come with fireworks access. I guess it can be arranged, but I don't, I don't recall seeing any particular, you know, like plaids only area. Think about when they redid the hub of the park. They created all of those spaces that were supposed to be holding areas. They created the fast pass touch points, you know, for people to get access. I have been hearing in the face of the 50th that the, they have been eyeballing the idea of reviving that concept based on the fact of, of the 50th demand. So it's entirely possible that certain corrals could, in fact, be reserved for these things for the 50th. Len and I have been following the plans for the 50th for about five years now, and so many of them got pushed aside by what happened with COVID. And there's, yeah. it's just been fascinating now watching how, oh, we're back at this level or, oh, we just got this green lit, you know, that, oh, certain things yeah. are getting turned back on again. So I think it's possible that those areas will in fact be reserved, but some of that is it keys off of what the demand will be for specific dates. Yeah. And I almost want to caution people that I know there are people who are determined to be there on October 1st you know, for the, the grand opening, you know, the, the, the anniversary of the opening of Walt Disney World. Yeah. And, and it just kind of breaks my heart that it's like, well, you understand the actual grand opening was held on the 24th or the 27th of October, 71. <laughs> yeah, but, but again, you know, if you want to be there at that day, go ahead. For me, I would weigh, you know, do I want to be there, have bragging rights to be there on October 1st, or do I want to have a good time? Yeah, it, is, is the hassle worth it just to see you there? I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm going to be here. I'm, I will be here. Mm-hmm. You know, do I, am I going to try and do, you know, 15 rides in the Magic Kingdom on October 1? Probably not. No, I'm, you know, I'm there to, to try a, a bunch of different hot dogs and maybe walk around and say hi to people. But yeah, so. the, uh, the last question, uh, do I have a shot now of securing a tour? Jason, I would be on that phone exactly at, you know, 6 or 7 a.m., depending on when that, um, that VIP tour guideline uh, opens. I think in general, there are around 60 full-time VIP tour guides. Those will be gone immediately, right? Mm-hmm. I think Disney has a staff of another 50 more, not necessarily dedicated, by, but people who know how to give a VIP mm-hmm. tour. So that gives you to 110. My understanding is the most number of VIP tours Disney's ever sold in a day 
is somewhere between 150 and 200. And that's the most number of people that they have are qualified to do it. I would be very surprised if they didn't get near that number on October 1, given the number of people that are, that are coming down. But you think about that, Jim. I mean, if we're anywhere near even average capacity at the parks, right? You're talking about 60,000 people in the Magic Kingdom, talking about 30-some thousand people in the studios, sorry, in the Epcot, you know, equal number in the studios, slightly less than that in the, um, in the Animal Kingdom. That's about 150-ish thousand people. Talking about one VIP tour guide for every thousand people, mm-hmm. tops. That's mm-hmm. not really a lot. There will definitely be demand okay. for okay. Uh, for VIP tour guides then, and especially with crowds. So I would make that tour guide reservation as soon as you are, literally as soon as the phone picks up on the Disney side. Okay, and they were saying call sixty days out. Sixty days out, exactly. Yeah. So sixty days and one second out, start dialing. There you go. Last question uh, of the week is from Judith, and I love this question, Jim. My partner and I are having a big debate about the middle name of our future daughter who's coming in October. We named our son Rhodey after Joe Rhodey. It's always entertaining to watch people's faces when we explain where the name came from, and it's not much different than naming uh, the kids Apple and Axel, so I figure it's fine. For our daughter, we wanted to use another Imagineer that has brought so much to the parks. My partner wants to use Blair for Mary Blair, and I want to use Gurr. From Bob Gurr. He keeps telling me we can't name a child Gurr, and I keep saying it's perfect. What a name of strength, Gurr. <laughs> Plus, I absolutely love Bob Gurr, and I don't know that much about Mary Blair. I'd love your guys' take on this. Also, I've agreed to read a book on both Imagineers before making my final call, and would love some suggestions for each artist. <laughs> you know, I was going to, you know, I, in, until Judith had said they had already named one child Rody, I was going to go with Joe Rody's earring for the second child, but that's. <laughs> Not really. Well, you know, the, a newborn will weigh almost as much as Joe Rody's earring. You know, the, yeah. The, so you know, it's yeah, exactly. And just to be clear here, we are talking about their middle name, right? Middle name, yeah. I want to point out that yes, Blair's a wonderful name. Gurr's a wonderful name. But if you want to stick with the original generation of Avengers, that's fine. But remember, you know, if you you want to go with Generation Two. You got Baxter, you got Rafferty, you got Gordon, uh, Mumford. You know, there's some wonderful, strong names there as well. Just the notion of, you know, here's my lovely daughter, uh, Meredith Gurr. You know, just sort of, <laughs> I'm sorry, did I anger you? No, 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 no. <laughs> you know, sounds like a start of an Abbott and Costello routine. You know, just sort of. <laughs> I'm not opposed to it. So, uh, in terms of uh, books, mm-hmm. I think for Mary Blair, it's the art and flair of Mary Blair. Oh, uh, that's sort of the book. Mm-hmm. And it, that has Mary Blair's done some of my favorite Disney art. I joke with Laurel. There's this nighttime scene from Peter Pan that she did for concept art. Mm-hmm. And it's on either the dream or the fantasy. I can't remember which ship, but I once told Laurel mm-hmm. like, in the morning, this painting and a lifeboat are going to be gone. <laughs> <laughs> and you're not going to tell anybody anything about anything. Right. <laughs> I have no idea where he is. So. Okay, cool. And Bob Gurr's done things like uh, basically anything on wheels in Disneyland, right? That's mm-hmm. his claim to fame. The monorail, the Utopia, Haunted Mansion, the submarine voyages, the Matterhorn, and things like that. So Bob's got his own list of accomplishments. I would also throw in there Herb Ryman, mm-hmm. who Disney hired after seeing his art. Mm-hmm. He's uh, designed stuff on Main Street, Sleeping Beauty, Beauty Castle, New Orleans Square, um, Jungle Cruise, Pirates. Mm-hmm. The World's Fair stuff, great moments with Mr. Lincoln, the Epcot Center Pavilion. So, um, Herb Ryman is up there. And then uh, Harper Goff. 
Harper. Oh my God, that's a great girl's name. All right, all right, we're, we're stopping right here. Go with Harper. That's a great middle name for a girl. Every time you walked on Main Street, you'd be like, this, this is your legacy. Right there you go. Okay. No, if great our, suggestion. Uh, Killer. Thank you. If our listeners have any other ideas for Judith's next child's middle name, uh, let us know and we'll read them on the next show. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim finishes the history of Toy Story Mania. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. And we're back. All right, Jim. This is the fourth of four parts on the history of Toy Story Midway Mania. And when we left off, we had an idea that there was going to be a Mickey Mouse attraction as part of the expansion of Disney's California Adventure, right? Yep. Kevin Rafferty talks about this. In his 2019 memoir, Magic Journey, My Fantastical Walt Disney Imagineering Career, last show we were talking about, they had their name, Mickey's Midway Mania. Teeny time problem. Mickey is the most classic of the classic Disney characters. What they were thinking of doing was that Mickey and the gang would work the game booths on Paradise Pier, but that idea didn't last long because it was hard for us to land on an easy-to-get story hook. It just didn't feel right to have our most classic of classic characters operating Midway Games. You have to understand that Imagineering is kind of an inexact science. I mean, for example, May of 2005, we have Buzz Lightyear Astro Blasters open up at Disneyland Park. And this comes some seven years after Buzz Lightyear Space Ranger Spin opened at the Magic Kingdom. But the way that people fund parks, it's like, geez, you know, a, a ride through shooting gallery. Shouldn't that be over in Paradise Pier? And it's like, well, yeah, but we just spent $100 million last year on your park building a clone of Tower of Terror. This is about, especially in the Southern California market, it's like, let's give them a reason this year to go to Disneyland. Let's give them a reason next year to go to the DCA. In fact, honestly, Len, it's not a coincidence that after Star Wars Galaxy's Edge opened at Disneyland Park in 2019, if things had held and there hadn't been COVID the very next summer of 2020, that's when Avengers Campus was supposed to open in Anaheim. All oh, right. One of the main reasons that Buzz Lightyear Astro Blaster wound up at Disneyland for the 50th anniversary was prior to this. Tokyo Disneyland had expressed an interest in getting the very same attraction. And then the guys who were planning Hong Kong Disneyland also thought, yeah, for Tomorrowland, we're going to do this. So it was financial expedience. It's like, look, we're building two. Why don't we just build a third one and put that in Disneyland? So Kevin and Robert, who are assigned to work on the DCA project, but it's one of these things, they go back over to Paradise Pier. And it's just one of these things where they're they're looking at it and it's like, this place needs a shoeing company. And it's like, you can't. You know, you, you, we literally just opened this, you know, a shooting gallery ride through attraction in Disneyland, you know, in, in May of 2005. You can't, you can't do that. Yeah. You can't follow up shooting galleries with shooting galleries. 
Kevin and Robert are like, screw that noise. All right, we're going to do this. So they put together their proposal for a Mickey thing. And, and it's just sort of like, well, you know, we got to figure out a way to put these classic characters into the side of the park. So for a time, they try to justify it. But it's like, well, what if we peel the sun face off of the sun wheel? And we put a pie-eyed Mickey from the 30s up there. I mean, you, you're sort of signaling to the world with this giant 150-foot-tall Ferris wheel. It's like, hey, this is where you can find Mickey. And hey, look, just behind this, we've got a, a shooting gallery ride themed to Mickey. But then in January of 2006, word comes down that here is Disney buying Pixar animation for $7.4 billion. Word comes down from on high that Bob Iger, who's only been on the job as the big cheese at Disney for four months at this point, it's the effect of, you know, I really, 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 really want to see some Pixar stuff in the parks as soon as possible. And so we cut back to Rafferty and, and Coltrane. And remember, uh, Kevin's the writer, director on this project, and Robert is the designer. And they're like, we're kind of jamming. Uh, a square peg into a round hole here with Mickey and Paradise Pier. And, you know, we, we, we really, it's, it's not a comfortable fit, but they want Pixar. And what's the most popular Pixar franchise? You know, it's Toy Story. And it's like, oh, we can't do this, can we? I mean, we literally just opened Buzz Lightyear Astro Blaster eight months ago right. inside of that. You know, there is just no way they're going to go for another attraction based on the, the Toy Story IP. But they work up boards, they work up a pitch. In fact, this is literally the, the one-sided pitch they gave. Guests get to play classic Midway games, but these games are hosted by the Toy Story characters. Kevin, to this day, talks about it was the fastest approval he's ever gotten in his 30-year history at really? Walt Disney Imagineering. <laughs> That's great. You know, it kind of makes sense, though, because if you think about the other theming of Paradise Pier, mm -hmm. the idea that that you're, the guests are playing the Midway games, mm -hmm. but they're virtual and it doesn't cost money. Yep. That theming does fit in really well. Yeah, but inside of six weeks of writing the pitch, drawing the boards, they have gone to, you know, not a, well, it's a flashing yellow. It, it's a green light. It's a go. They're like, hey, by the way, we don't just want this for Paradise Pier. We want this for Disney's Hollywood Studios. So build two of these. So I get, I get that Toy Story fits into the studios. But in terms of carnival games, the only carnival games in Walt Disney World are at Animal Kingdom. This is where it gets interesting because it's John Lasseter who begins to, but it's a carnival game thing. And he's like, no, 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 no. Entirely different idea. What we're going to do. This is a movie. This is a park that celebrates the making of movies. Let's build a new land. Let's build Pixar Place. John gets so crazy into the Pixar Place idea. He insists, for example, that they use the exact same brick that they built right, right, yeah. the Pixar campus out of in Emeryville, which you know will come back to bite them later on in this project, particularly with the Florida sun. And again, that one fast-tracked as well. I mean, August uh, 19th of that year, East Coast version of Who Wants a Billion Millionaire, you know, just shuts. Yeah. Cast members showed up to work the shift and, no, it's closed. <laughs> Thank you for working here. Go away. There's a, a press conference on December 15th, 2006, that where they announced that not only are we getting this Toy Story Midway Mania attraction, they're also going to be building a version at DCA. The initial plan was, could we put it where the Maliboomer is? You know, and then they go over and they survey the site and eh, it's too small a footprint. Meanwhile, Rob is looking at California screaming 
and pulls out the schematics and looks at it real hard. And it's like, you know, what if we build it under the coaster? And it's like, under the mm. coaster. Under the coaster. According to imaginers I've spoken to about this project, they were able to get in there. They pulled out three of the gaming booths that had previously been there in the carnival section and one steel support. Just that, that bit of news that they won. Which one? What did they take out? It's always made me hesitant to go on California Screaming Sins. It's like, yeah. was that, was, was that a, you know, a load-bearing support by some chance? And it's like, you know, shut up, you. Get on the ride. So again, we talked about the, you know, West Coast versus East Coast. The version of the show building in California had to echo the style of Paradise Pier, which, of course, celebrated the seaside amusement piers of the 20s and the 30s. So turn of the century building had to look fit just fine. But again, in Florida, different animal. They fit the attraction inside of Soundstage 3. But it's again, it's one of these things where it's like, okay, the attraction fits in there. But the queue, I mean, if you remember the original setup for Toy Story uh, Midway Mania in Florida, mm-hmm. yes, it was wonderful once you got inside in that wonderful air-conditioned queue. Oh yeah, but it was it was outside, uh, winding back and forth along Pixar Place. Yeah, yeah, and particularly to have fronted all of these sound stages and this. What again? You got to remember that, that <laughs> with the brick, with the brick, <laughs> right? You know, it's a pizza oven. You have built it's a, a pizza, pizza oven. oven. <laughs> Not a good plan. So they're working on the buildings, and then now we cut back to Pixar, and they're working on the actual you know ride film component, the, the gaming system. And mm-hmm. wonderful conversation with the folks at Pixar about this when they were testing it. They do the play testing at Imagineering, and it was the notion of, okay, the whole conceit is you've been shrunk down to toy size, and you're now playing under Andy's bed where the, the Toy Story toys have set up this carnival game. But it's a question of, okay, so how tall then are Woody and Buzz and Bo and, and Jesse? And <laughs> eventually they, they began to realize if you get those characters above five foot six five foot seven they get scary <laughs> so it was really like yep i'm five six right there you know that they're cute at that size they, you know you don't think they're going to shake you down and take your wallet uh, and that's in fact <laughs> why the mr potato barker yeah. is made to be five feet tall and the way they improve his sight line is they put him on a a three foot tall sort of circus presentation stump thing which brings me actually to one of my favorite aspects of this ride which is of course the fact that, you know, Mr. Potato Head is interactive. He will talk with you. And that uh, the reason he can talk with you is the Imagineers brought Don Rickles in to do 30 to 35 hours of recording sessions. Holy cow. Yeah. That's a lot of hockey pucks. Speaking of which, that I once got to talk with, with Roger Gould, the creative liaison for Pixar, about this. And he was talking about Don, Don Rickles. You know, uh, he was in his early 80s at this point, but a lovely man. But every so often, you know, felt like, all right, yeah, I'm the insult comic. You expect me to insult you. And so at one point, he kind of turns to Roger and it's like, you're like the son I never wanted. <laughs> John Lasseter, uh, you know, that they, again, they're trying to line up names and, you know, they've already been turned down by Billy Crystal for Buzz Lightyear and they still haven't gotten, they still haven't landed Tom Hanks. So it's, it's kind of crucial they get a celebrity. So he actually drives to Don Rickles' home in Malibu. But again, he's got to sell him on the idea. 
you know, to, 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 did you got to be Mr. Potato Head in this kid's movie? So he, he's actually gone to a store and bought a really for real plastic Mr. Potato Head. And so John gets out of the car. He walks up to the Rickles front door, rings the doorbell, you know, Don himself answers the door and, and <laughs> John, because he's nervous, sort of shoves Mr. Potato Head into Rickles hand and the hat falls off and it falls on the ground. So Don bends over to pick over the hat and John has this perfect view of the top of Don Rickles head. And it's, it's potato shaped. I mean, it, it's yes, a, Mr. Potato Head. There you, you know, go. It, it's a sign from God. He was fated to have this role. <laughs> so wait, so so Bill, they approached Billy Crystal. About Bill, Billy Crystal was the original choice for Lunar Larry. That was before he the character got named Buzz Lightyear, and and in fact that that's the story that Billy Crystal tells to this day. There's like I was the idiot who turned down Toy Story. So you know the day that the phone, you know, he walked up to the phone at his house and it said Pixar. He picked it up and said, "I'll take <laughs> yeah, it. I'll take yes, it." Yes, whatever it is. Yes, <laughs> I was going to ask the question. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of which, though, <laughs> we we lost Don. In 2017, at the age of 90, which in theory should have made it impossible to have Mr. Potato Head as a character in Toy Story 4, which came out in June of 2019. But because of those 30 to 35 hours of recordings that they had with Don, Josh Cooley and the team behind Toy Story 4 were actually able to go in, listen to all this stuff, and build a brand new Mr. Potato Head performance. So what you oh. hear in that film is authentic Don Rickles. That, you know, but that only exists because of the Toy Story Mania arrived. Again, the attraction opens May of 2008. In fact, mm -hmm. what was kind of cool about the opening press event for the Disney's Hollywood Studios version was that Buzz couldn't be there that day because he was on the space shuttle. I mean, really on the space shuttle? They had taken a Buzz Lightyear action figure with them into orbit. Oh, nice. Just three weeks later, the California Adventure version opens. It's 10 years later, and even with that brick oven aspect of Toy Story uh, Midway Mania at Disney Hollywood Studios, that's an attraction that started popular and just got even more popular. So the original, the original capacity for that ride when it opened, mm. well, it was, and it was by far the most popular attraction in the park. Oh, no doubt. was around 1,000 people an hour, which to put it in perspective, mm -hmm. the original version of Dumbo, the mm -hmm. one, one arm spinner, mm. was around 720 yeah. people per hour. So for, uh, and things like you know, Big Thunder Mountain is 1,500, 1,600 people an hour. Mm -hmm. Space Mountain is 1,900 on average or something like that. Mm -hmm. So for it to be... The most popular attraction or the most in demand, uh, one of the most in demand attractions in the park and have a capacity of a thousand people an hour is, is just a recipe for disaster. Absolutely. But what fascinates me is it's seven years later, they make the announcement, we're going to build a third theater. Not only are we going to build a third theater here, we're also going to build a third theater over at Epcot for soaring. And people were like, oh my God, Disney's never done anything like this before. And it's like, yeah. wrong. Back when Disneyland opened in July of 1955, the Autopia was so popular, Len, that Walt decided to build two more Autopias inside of the berm. There was the Junior Autopia that opened in April of 56. It was built where the old Mickey Mouse Club circus tent had been set up. And then in uh, April of 57, they opened the Midget Autopia. Uh, not the, the, the greatest name these days, but you know. And that was actually built pretty much where the facade, the entrance complex, 
super small world exists today. And in fact, when this stopped operation in uh, 66, so they could build small world, Walt mm-hmm. actually packs up the Midgetotopia and sends it to Marceline, Missouri as his gift to the children of that city. And it then oh, operates nice. in, that, in that city for the next 11 years. And then September 58, the, what used to be the Junior Autopia closes. And when it reopens in January 59, that's now the Fantasyland Autopia. So uh, Walt did in situations like this where we need to meet capacity. Okay, we build another one. So the third theater for Toy Story Midway Mania and the third Soren Theater, Kevin grew up going to Disneyland. So he knew that Walt yeah. did this. And in fact, I was lucky enough to get the talk with uh, Marty Scalar. In fact, I got to interview him as part of the, the opening uh, press event for Disney's California Adventure in February of 2001. Asked him, if you had to do this again, if you had to build this park again, what would you do? And Marty thought for a second and said, I'd have built a third theater for Soren. People really seem to like that ride. So you know, even he was talking about this stuff. But finally, there we go. After four installments, we finally get to the end of, of Midway Madness, you know, the uh, Toy Story Midway Mania. The only thing I regret about this attraction is as part of the opening press events, they did talk about how they were going to do seasonal overlays for this ride. I remember that. Yeah. They're like, oh, it's all virtual. We can do seasonal overlays. And then we haven't. Yeah. Well, you know, they did update one game when Toy Story 3 came out in 2010. But me personally, you know, especially with, you know, Disney leaning so hard into Halloween and Christmas. It's time, you know, give us a, yeah. give it a holiday overlay for these things. I'd love to see that. Yeah, I agree. I'd love to see it uh, too. And, uh, you know, once the program is done, they can rotate it in. There you go. There could be there yeah. forever. So yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right, Jim, good job on that. Yeah, glad you like it. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.bandcamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including a new show on the history of discovery Island in Walt Disney World. On next week's show, Jim and I talk about the history of the Mickey Mouse floral design outside of the Disneyland train station. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at tryingplans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams. We'll be demonstrating tricks such as the side slide, multi-yo-yo, and crazy copter at the week-long Washington State International Kite Festival starting this August 16th at Long Beach in beautiful Long Beach, Washington. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and Raider Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.